right now I'm walking through the ancient streets of the old city, Jerusalem. And it was built upon the foundations of many other cultures from many other times. And it's a lot like our faith. Our faith has come down to us through the stories, the events, and the lives of other people that God has used. And so, in this series, we're inviting you to walk along with us as we look at those ancient foundations for our faith. This series is called Origins. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come to do the will of him who sent me. It is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. I I'm actually standing in the synagogue. In, in the very place that Jesus first declared this revolutionary truth. He is the bread of life. Welcome to Capernaum. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here, whether you're a guest or a regular attender, as we continue in this series called Origins, looking at the context of, of the life of Christ so that we can understand it in a way that impacts us more greatly. But b before we jump in, um, we have to dispense with just a couple of things. You, you just watched a video of me standing there in the synagogue of Capernaum, and I need you to immediately erase the picture of me in those board shorts, if you would. That would be very, very helpful. Uh, I wore those that day because they said, don't worry, we're only doing uh, waist-to-head shots. Liars! They lied to me. Uh, the second little bit of business we need to dispense with is the name of the city itself this wasn't the place where Jesus was born. That was Bethlehem. This wasn't the place where he grew up. That was Nazareth. This was his chosen city as an adult as he went into ministry. And I grew up my entire life of faith, you know, calling it Capernaum. That's what everybody called it, Capernaum. But when you really go there, when you really start understanding, you know that's not necessarily how it should be pronounced. Most would pronounce it Capernaum. Capernaum. That's very different than Capernaum. So here's the thing I promise. I am going to destroy the name of this city greatly. So just know I'm talking about this place, whatever it's called, and we'll go from there. Make sense? And I have to tell you, for years, I missed so much of what was going on in the Bible. Not just this passage, but all passages, just because I didn't know or understand or recognize context. 
I didn't take the time to understand the context in which it was delivered. In fact, I'm one of these people that I want to get right to the important stuff. So I'd, I'd go to the Bible that way. I'd go, let's get to the important stuff. Let's get to the important stuff. Let's get to the important stuff. And I missed so much of the important stuff because I didn't know context. I have discovered over the course of my journey, and I really want you to understand and discover for yourself that the context is important stuff. You'll never arrive at the truth of what's going on if you don't understand the context. Context is key to understanding the Bible. And the passage that I read in that video is a perfect example. I used to just fly through that passage where Jesus was announcing that he was the bread of life, and I I missed how unbelievably profound that event was. And I'm sure the same has been true for you. If you don't know context, I know it has. So this weekend, I'm going to share some of the context. The the text tells us very clearly that Jesus was speaking in the synagogue of Capernaum, but that doesn't do much for you until you really dig into two ideas. The first idea is this. You, You have to think about what he's really saying in that context, what he's really saying in the words that I read from John chapter 6. He is is saying, and this is the truth for this weekend's talk, he is saying, I am the one and only Savior for the world. That's what he's saying. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one and only Savior for the world. And that's our truth. Jesus is the one and only Savior for the world. He's the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Rescuer that God promised And he fulfilled that promise. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 makes it clear that he's the only way of salvation. It says salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. What the Bible's saying there is there aren't many different ways to the same God. There aren't many different ways to find forgiveness in a relationship with God. There's only one way. Jesus is the one and only Savior for the world. But a lot of people say, yeah, but Jesus never said that. That's what people said after he died and went away. And the Bible never shows Jesus saying that. And yes, it does. This passage that we're reading in John chapter 6, look at what Jesus says in verses 33 and 35. He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I'm not like an ordinary person, though I am fully human. I'm coming from heaven, and I'm coming to give life to the world. And then Jesus declared... And this was right there in that synagogue. I am the bread of life. Now, a lot of people don't get that so much. I am the bread of life. You know what he was claiming? He was claiming that the manna, the bread that Moses provided in the wilderness wandering times of the people of Israel was nothing compared to him. That's what he's saying in this portion of John 6. Now, you might not be familiar with the Bible, so you don't know that the people of God were enslaved in Egypt, in Egypt for 400 years, enslaved in a bad way at the end, and God came to set them free. And the way he helped set them free was through the plagues. And then when they finally were free, they disobeyed God. They didn't trust God to go into the promised land, so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, a place where there was no resource for food, for agriculture. And so God, through the instrument of Moses provided manna, bread in the desert. It was a big deal. And Jesus is saying, that manna that Moses gave in the wilderness, that God provided in the wilderness, was only temporary. I mean, you'd eat it one day and you'd need it again the next. And everyone who ate it died. And so it's not really a big deal, especially in light of who I am, he's saying. I am the bread of life who came down from heaven to provide not just temporary life, but eternal life. I'm going to tell you, to the Jews of that day, this was blasphemy. I mean, Moses was the hero of their faith. I mean, Moses wrote the first five books of our Old Testament, which is the Torah for the Jew. I mean, it was their spiritual text. It was the foundation for everything they believed. It was all they were about For the Jew of this time, there was nothing more sacred, nothing more valuable, nothing more holy, nothing more important to them. And here Jesus was saying, yeah, you know, I'm more sacred, I'm more valuable, I'm more holy, I'm more important than Moses or the Torah, what he did. 
Now that's craziness. And it gets even crazier when you understand not just what he was saying, but where he was saying it. In this portion of John 6, he says, he said all this, he taught all this in the synagogue of Capernaum. Now, it was a small and isolated and seemingly irrelevant city in light of the Roman Empire. I mean, compared to Roman, it was nothing. In fact, it was on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. On the, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee was the Decapolis. Ten Roman Greek cities, great marbles, beautiful wealth and prosperity and opulence. And as a city, Capernaum was nothing. But it was very significant to the Jews of that day. It was a fishing town. That's really where Jesus was walking the beach of the Sea of Galilee and he called out the fishermen, you know, Peter and Andrew and James and John. It was also, you might not know, famous for stone cutters because stone cutters would cut the stone of Capernaum into food grinders and food processors because it was such a hard rock that it wouldn't create dust of granule of rock that would get into the food. So it was a famous stone cutting place. And more than likely, when it talks about Joseph being a carpenter and Jesus being apprentice as a carpenter, it wasn't wood carpentry at all. It was stone cutting, more than likely. He was a stone cutter. That's what it was about. But this was also this town called Capernaum. The place, the center for Jewish scholarship. It was the center of academia for their beliefs and for their study of the, of the Torah, of the scriptures. If you want a, an equivalent today, it would be like their Harvard town or their Yale town or more relevant to us in Michigan, it would be like their Ann Arbor, nothing like Lansing. <laughs> it, would be, it would be their Ann Arbor, but you get the idea. In the city of Capernaum, they had a huge population of rabbis, the spiritual teachers and trainers of the day. In fact, there are some portions of the historical record that say that there were more rabbis in Capernaum than in all the other regions around. This was the center of their faith, the center of their beliefs, the center of their teaching, the center of everything they were about. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus goes into the synagogue of the center of their, of their faith. And, and he proclaims this truth. Yeah, Moses was okay. That manna thing was pretty cool. But it's nothing like me. I mean, it was only for temporary life. I bring you the eternal life. I'm the true bread of life. Him doing that in Capernaum, in that synagogue, was like a person going to Mecca today and saying, Muhammad was all right, but not nearly as great as me. You do that, and I've got news for you. We'll see you in heaven. Because they're taking you down. And that's exactly why so many people wanted to kill Jesus. He did the same crazy thing. It's hard to understand it until you understand the context. But here's the question. Why did he do it? Jesus didn't do anything haphazardly or coincidentally. Jesus did everything intentionally. And here he is, the creator of the world. And he wants to make this announcement. Now, he's already been announcing it in John chapter 6 through his life. In the beginning of John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 men. With women and children, it was probably tens of thousands. What's he feed them with? He feeds the entire mass of the multitudes with a couple of fish and five loaves of bread. What was he saying? Yeah, only God can create something from nothing. You know that Genesis 1-1 God? That's me. And then he walks on water. By the way, the only one who can break the laws of creation is the one who created those laws. Yeah, that's me. In John chapter 6, he walks on water. And now, intentionally, strategically, he walks into the synagogue of their academic center, of their faith. And he says, I am the bread of life. Why did he do it? If we're honest, there could only be a couple of reasons. One would be, he was a lunatic. And they didn't have the right medicine for him yet. Another explanation could be, he had a death wish. He wanted to go out, and he was going to go out in style. The other explanation could be, and I think the only other one is, because it was true. And when you look at the character of his life, and you look at the nature of how he lived, the only answer that makes sense, the only answer that holds any kind of water at all is that the reason he did this is because it was true. 
Moses was nothing in contrast to him. The bread in the desert was nothing in contrast to him. He was the bread of life that brings eternal life to the whole world. Jesus really is the one and only Savior for the world. But here's the reality I want you to see. This is so important. Most people didn't get this in Jesus' day. They just didn't get it. And most people don't get this in our day. They don't. John 6, 36, but as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. You've seen me create something out of nothing and feed the multitude. You've seen me walk on the water. You've seen me and still you do not believe. Most people didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They didn't embrace it. And we're not talking about people out there. We're talking about the people at the heart of the faith of Judaism. The ones who believed that a Messiah was promised of God. The ones who taught that the Messiah would come. The ones who were looking generation after generation for Messiah to come. And they missed it. They didn't believe it. I I know because I'm a human being how it's easy for us in this place to react to this. Most people miss the reality of Jesus in Jesus' day. Yeah, those, those, why, why were they so dumb? Why are they ignorant? And then you hear me say, and most people today miss it, and we sit in settings like this and we go, yeah, those people out there, why don't they get it? Why don't they wake up? But it's not talking to those people out there or the people back then, it's talking to people like us. Most of us miss it. Most of us fail to recognize it. Most of us fail to embrace it for its full significance. Jesus is the one and only Savior for the world, but many of us, many of us don't live as if he's the only Savior for our lives. Jesus said this would be true. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And that's where the multitude are, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. Just a few find that. In places like this, like the synagogue of Capernaum, where we open the Bible, where we talk about God's truth, we sing about God, we proclaim to be followers of God, it's still easy to miss, ignore, reject the concept in our life that he is the one and only Savior for the world. This is not a message for people out there. This is a message for people in here. This is not a message for you. This is a message for me. This is a message for us. But if we're going to really get this idea that he's the one and only Savior for the world, there are some foundational truths that we have to understand and embrace that they missed in the synagogue of Capernaum that we'll miss today if we don't get. There's a reason Jesus went to this synagogue. It was because he wanted people to know that even those who seem to be closest can still be so far away, and this could be us. What are the foundational truths? The first one is this. If we're going to really capture the idea that he's the one and only Savior for the world, then we have to capture the idea that we all need a Savior. Circle the word all. We all need a Savior. Now, I know when we start talking about Savior, we go, yeah, my neighbor needs a Savior, my boss needs a Savior, good night, our government needs a Savior. You know, I mean, those people out there need a Savior. No, we all need a Savior. And you might not be real familiar with the Bible, and we're thrilled that you're here, but if you're at all familiar with the Bible, you know the two passages that I'm going to give to prove we all need a Savior. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have pushed God out of the center of their lives and put themselves at the center. All have stopped devoting themselves to the worship of God and devoted themselves to the worship of self. All have sinned and fallen short of everything God created us to experience. And then God says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Now many of us who express faith in Christ, we acknowledge these to be true. But if we're really, really honest, it's hard for us to understand why sin requires death. There are a lot of people who I just don't get it. Why? I mean, why is it? Look at it. I mean... I fail, people fail, we all fail. It's not like we're killing each other over it. It's not like that we're that offended that we want you know, everybody to die. You lied dead, you know, that kind of thing. So, so why does God require death for sin? It's hard for us to comprehend. And then we start saying, if God is such a loving God, 
how come he can't cut us some slack here? If God's such a loving God, how come he requires death for sin? We're not even that uptight. Just seems over the top, doesn't it? But this is because we're viewing it from the wrong perspective. We're viewing sin from our perspective as sinners instead of God's perspective as the holy God. Now get a hold of this. We always rationalize our situation to be better than what it really is. We always rationalize ourselves to be better than what we really are. So we're going to go, you know, what's the big deal? You lie, I lie, no big deal. But it's got to be measured by God, not by us. In fact, I've been reading a book by uh, a pastor in America called David Platt. He's, he's, he wrote a book called Radical a while back, and he's written a new book called Follow Me. And he said some things about this that I thought were so profound, no reason for me to make up my own. I mean, I, I'll just quote you from him, and this is be probably the best part of the talk I've ever written in my entire life because I didn't write it, all right? He, he, he said, the penalty for sin is not determined by our measure of it. The penalty of sin is not determined by our view, our measure of it. Instead, the penalty for sin is determined by the magnitude of the one who is sinned against. And then he goes on to explain, if you sin against a log, you're not very guilty. If you sin against another person, yeah, you're guilty. But if you sin against an infinitely holy and eternal God, you're infinitely guilty and worthy of eternal punishment. Whoa, those are heavy words. But they're still words of theory and philosophy and theology, right? Still hard to connect to. So then what David Platt did is he gave an example from his own personal relationship sphere. He knows a guy named Azim who is an Arab, but an Arab Christ follower. And Azim was in the Middle East in a taxi cab with a person who wasn't a Christ follower. And he was trying to explain, you know... We've all sinned. The punishment of sin is death, and that's why Jesus came. And this taxi cab driver just didn't buy it. He goes, you know, yeah, I've sinned. I've messed up. So have all of us. But come on. I mean, we might get punished a little bit, but we're not going to die over it. What's the big deal? And this is what Azim said, according to David Platt. If I slapped you in the face, he asked the taxi cab driver, what would you do to me? And the driver answered, I'd throw you out of my taxi. He goes, yeah, that's right. That makes sense. Then as he went further, he asked the driver, if I, if I went up to a random guy in the streets of this country and I slapped them in the face, what would that person do to me? He'd go collect his family and friends and come and beat the living stuff out of you. Did you see that self-control there? That was unbelievable self-control just now. He'd pummel you. Zim said, yeah, he would. That's right. And he said, what would happen if I slapped a police officer in the face in this country. The taxi cab driver says, you'd still get, you know, pounded into the ground by him and his fellow officers, but then you'd get thrown in jail to boot. And he goes, yeah, that's probably true. And then he asked the final question to the driver. Azim said, what would happen if I went to the king of this country and slapped him in the face? And the taxi cab driver, without batting an eye, said, you'd die. And he was right. And here's the point. The severity of sin's punishment is always a reflection of the position of the person who sinned against. This is why the punishment of our sin against God is death. He's the king of the universe. He's holy. He can't be defiled by us without a consequence. The wages of sin is death. And of course, a holy God must be just must always do what's always right, must always judge what's always wrong, or he's not holy at all. What would you think of a judge who just decided to let a murderer off? No justice whatsoever. You'd go, that is not a good judge. And the same would be true of God. He has to be just, but God is not just just and holy. He's also love. And so here's what he said. I have to punish sin by death, but I love you so much I'm going to die in your place. And this is what Jesus came to do, and this is what Jesus did. If you're going to really understand that Jesus is the one and only Savior, what he announced in the synagogue of Capernaum, then you have to know that we all need a Savior. You, me, we all. But you have to know something else. Jesus is the Savior we all need. It it, it can't be just any Savior. Jesus is is the Savior we all need. 
I mean, you go all the way back to the fall of man, and it always required death, a sacrifice of an animal with no blemish in order to cover temporarily the sins of God's people. This is why all through the Old Testament, sheep and different animals that have no blemish are being killed and their blood's being applied for the temporary forgiveness of people. It was all pointing forward to something. When God himself would come and die for us. John the Baptist recognized this in John chapter 1 verse 29 and talk about context being the key to understanding. He was providing the context of the whole Old Testament so people would understand Jesus. It says the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God. It was Jesus. It wasn't a lamb, but this was the context. You know all those lambs that died? You know all the blood that was shed? You know all the death that was experienced for sin? It was all pointing to this man, Jesus, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Why is Jesus the Savior we all need? How come it can't just be any prophet, any religious environment? How come just Jesus? Because Jesus is the only man who had no sin, the only person with no blemish, with no failure. And he's the only one that earned God's approval for life and fullness and being in the kingdom of God, and he's the only one who was willing to take the punishment of death on himself. That's why he died on the cross, and he's the only one who rose from the dead. And know this, it's not an accident. It was intentional. In Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, 700 years before Jesus came to this earth, 700 years before Jesus came to this earth, before the torture of cross crucifixion was even invented on this planet, look at what God prophesied in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And one last verse. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There in that synagogue in Capernaum, amidst people who claimed to believe God's truth and God's words, but were missing God. Jesus made it clear, we all need a Savior, and he's the Savior we all need. You can believe or not believe anything you want. You're not going to change that fact. We all need a Savior, and he's the Savior we all need. But there's one thing you can change. You can change the impact it does or doesn't have on your life. Because you see, we all have a decision to make. Will we acknowledge that we need a Savior, that we can't save ourselves? Will we acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior, the one and only Savior that we all need or not? In Jesus' day, in that synagogue, they didn't. They wanted to kill him. But how about in our hearts, in our lives? Will we be like the few who embraced him as the bread of life or will we be like the many who totally missed him? Look at John 6. Look at the context again of this story. Verse 51 through 54. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I'll give for the life of the world, Jesus said to them. I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up at the last day. Jesus isn't talking about cannibalism. Jesus is saying, what I'm going to do with my flesh, the only perfect flesh to have ever walked this planet, what I'm going to do with my blood, the only blood that remains untainted by sin in this world, is I'm going to give it for you. And you have to apply it to your life. You have to decide, I'm the bread of life. And by faith, you have to partake. If you don't, though you need a Savior, and he's the Savior you need, you'll never experience salvation. As in Jesus' day, though all of us need him, most of us fail to recognize most of us fail to notice him, depend on him as that savior. We make the wrong decisions. This weekend, I want to encourage you to make the right decision. Understand you need a savior and he's the savior you need. He's the only one available. And the reason life's not what it should be for you is because you're not experiencing what only he can bring to you. In John chapter six, from the teaching of Jesus in that synagogue, there are some 
great decisions that we should make. I've worded them so that four of them are stop decisions and four of them are start decisions. Stop four, start three. The first thing we can learn is we should stop living for and looking to the wrong things to fill us. You need to stop living for and looking to the wrong things to fill you because the wrong things will never bring you the fulfillment you're looking for. We're living in a world of abundance here in our little part of the world, and yet it still abounds with emptiness. Why? Because we're looking for the wrong things to fill us. Look at John chapter 6, verses 26 to 27. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. I just fed the multitude bread, and you're coming not because you recognize me as God, but you're coming because you want me to make you another meal. And then he says, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you if you choose him. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. You know what people wanted? They wanted stuff from him instead of him. They cared about what he could give them instead of who he was. And do you know it's the same today? Many of us don't pursue Jesus because we want him. We pursue Jesus because we want stuff from him. I lost my job, and he can maybe give me a new job. So I'll put up with all this religious crap so that maybe God will give me what only he can give me a job. Yeah, I have a broken relationship, and you know he's been known to fix people, and my spouse certainly needs to get fixed. I don't need to be fixed, but my spouse needs to get fixed, and maybe he can fix my spouse, or my kids are certainly messed up. Maybe he can give me some new kids, you know, that kind of gig. And we come to him not for who he is, but for what he can give us. You know, in the people in that synagogue, if the people in that synagogue had just believed in him, their whole lives would have changed for all of eternity, but it wasn't. They weren't because they didn't. And the same will be true for us unless we come to the place where we say we need him as our savior. Another thing we can learn to decide here is we need to stop wasting our life on the wrong work. Many of us are wasting our life on the wrong work. We're doing the work of religion or the work of traditions or the work of rituals. But look what Jesus said in John six twenty nine. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, to believe in the one he has sent. You know what the work that we need to do is? The work of continuing to just hold on to him, trust him, believe in him, even when it doesn't make any sense. In John chapter 6, we learn that the decision we need to make in light of the fact that he's the bread of life, the one and only Savior of the world, that we all need a Savior, and he's the Savior we need. We need to to make the decision to stop trying to do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. We need a Savior, and he's the Savior we need. Only God can do it. Look at how he said it in John 6, 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You can't come to God on your own. You won't even pursue God on your own. You need God to draw you. And then when he does... I'll raise you up in the last day. It's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. They were talking a lot about God, but they weren't listening to God because if they had been listening to God back then, they would have come to Jesus. We talk a lot about God and the Bible and truth and all that stuff here. But unless we're coming to Jesus, we're not really, truly listening to the Father. Do you realize that when we try on our own, the result will always be the same? We'll fail, we'll fail, and we'll fail again. But when we stop trying and we just start simply trusting Jesus, he can and he will change the result. But so you see that it goes beyond my words and the words of the Bible to reality? Listen to this story of a man who's a part of the Northridge family. My name's Brian. I'm 48. I've been through 33 rehabs, eight mental institutions. I flatline respiratory failure three times that I know of. I have lost all of my teeth. I have been to hell. My dad was an alcoholic. All my relatives, uh, pretty much alcoholics. And you know, later on in my life, I started doing those, you know, those very same behaviors that were. You know, set out before me. I started off as a music teacher when I graduated college. I was fully alcoholic, fully bulimic, duly addicted, and that lasted for a number of years. By the time I left um, 
the teaching career, I was down to 106 pounds, which is about 40 pounds off of what I am right now. And I ended up at the Mayo Clinic. When I left, I knew something was wrong because I wasn't healed. I wasn't fixed. My parents had uh, given up on me. They put, put up with my drinking for so long, they said, you've got to go. And then you go off to a treatment center and they say, you've got to go. And where do you go? During those years, it was literally, how can I exist? There was no plans and a hope for a future. You know, you're just worried about who's going to steal your stuff underneath the bridge. I did not want to live anymore. Drink a half gallon vodka, wrap my face with duct tape, you know, put it around my lips so I could hopefully aspirate, uh, choke on the vomit, and then just lay there on the park bench waiting to die. And the cops came, they got me, and they said, you're blowing your probation, you're gonna stay in jail until we can get this thing figured out. I went to court and the uh, judge asked, told me, well, we are going to send you off to Life Challenge. Life Challenge is a year-long Christian discipleship program. And I went and I never, never looked back. Christ met me. I just simply said, take me, do whatever you want with me. He taught me to depend on him for every little thing. There is no magic cure of if I do this many meetings or if I do this, I, if I, there's no I, you know, in it. It is all Christ and it's just a gift and I really don't claim to understand it, but I am very grateful. It's every day by grace and mercy. Brian needed a savior. Jesus was the savior he needed, but he was never going to experience that salvation until he stopped trying to do it on his own. Until he stopped wasting his life doing the wrong work. He had to come to the end of himself and trust Christ, and when he did, his life was changed. There's one more decision that's required if we're really going to experience Jesus in the fullness of his identity as Savior that comes out of John 6. We have to stop grumbling because Jesus doesn't make sense to us. If we're going to really experience him saving us, we have to stop grumbling because Jesus doesn't make sense to us, doesn't do what we think he should do. Look at John 6, verses 41 through 43. At this, the Jews began to grumble. Here he was in the heart of, of the academic center of their theology, and they didn't get it. The Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, you know, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? And Jesus answered, stop grumbling among yourselves. You need to understand something. God will not make sense to you. The day God makes perfect sense to you is the day you're equal with God, and that day is never going to happen. His thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. He's not going to make sense to you. He's, he's not going to come to you in the way you expect him to come. They thought, they, they wanted Messiah to come. They were praying for Messiah to come. But they thought they knew Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, but they didn't know the whole story. Jesus was virgin born. Joseph was just the stepdad. They didn't understand. And so they missed the point. They didn't understand what only God could understand. And so they, until they could understand, weren't going to accept Jesus as the bread of life. And the same thing's happening all around us and in us. We just grumble. It doesn't make sense to me. 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 Well, if you were God, that would be an important problem. But you're not. The work of you understanding isn't going to change your life. The work of believing that God knows more than you is the work that's going to change your life. And the same with me. Whether it makes sense to you or not, you need a Savior. 
whether it makes sense to you or not, Jesus is the Savior you need because he's the one and only Savior for the world. You need him. He's the answer you're looking for. He's the only one who can put your life back together again. He's the only one who can fill your life. And just so you know, it goes beyond my words. Here's an example of a young woman from Northridge Church. Watch. Well, my dad is a pastor, and I grew up in the church and I was in church every time the doors were open. I kind of relied on my parents' faith. I did accept Christ in my heart when I was very young. The same year that I accepted Christ in my life, I began being molested by men in the church. Several different men at different times um, began molesting me, and that lasted until I was about 10 or 11. It was by people that I trusted, people that my parents trusted, people that were on boards and committees. These are people that supposedly love God, so if they love God and they're doing this, then I don't want anything to do with God. After college, I began binge drinking on the weekends, and um, that led into uh, experimenting with drugs. I began smoking crack, and I was doing it on a daily basis. I was at a house that I had been using at for several days. I had been up for three or four days using, and I remember just taking some methadone that I had just bought off the street because I knew that would help me sleep. The people that were using in the house, they came out a few hours later, and there was foam coming out of my nose and my mouth, and I wasn't breathing, and so they called the ambulance, and I was in a coma for three days. You know, my family gathered because they weren't sure if I would wake up if I would have brain damage. And so my family was kind of preparing for what that looked like, if it was a funeral, if it was a home to put me in. When I did wake up and and I was not brain damaged, it was pretty, pretty amazing and we all knew it was a miracle. My family told me about a place called Life Challenge in Detroit and they told me that, you know, if, if I wanted to be a part of a, this family that I had to go there and stay for the 12 months. So I went to Detroit. Um, against everything that I wanted to do. And I just remember falling in love with God. Feeling like I was four again. And how God was healing that. That little girl that had been taken and the innocence that had been stolen, I was ready to give up the fight of trying to worship myself and be my own savior and be my own God. And I was ready. I have been sober since 2000. It's him. It's him that matters. It's him that can transform me on a daily basis. In his holiness and in his goodness, he uses anything, um, even things that don't seem usable. In light of this, the story that she was experiencing God didn't make sense to her, why he allowed certain things, why he didn't do certain things that she thought he should do. And so she just said, forget it all. I'll, I'll do it myself. And it wasn't until she stopped grumbling that Jesus didn't make sense to her and she stopped trying to fill her life with all the wrong things, stopped trying to do the work that was just simply a waste and could never be done. And she just said, yes, Jesus. She never experienced him as savior. You see, whether you experience his salvation or not all comes down to whether or not you make the right decisions, and most don't. When you do finally trust him as savior, he can then start putting the seemingly messed up and ugly and dark and broken pieces of your life back together into a beautiful mosaic of everything he intended for you. So we met at Life Challenge. We were both students at that time. We were both in the choir, and Brian was kind of put in charge of the choir. I heard this wonderful angelic voice singing in front of me, and I said, I need to find out who that is. And so we became friends. And he was always kind of like a, a 
big brother to me. He was always very respectful and kind. He had shared with me that he had feelings for me. And I was like, I don't really see that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I do not. Yeah, and and I had already told God that I didn't that I wanted to get married, but I didn't think that that's what he had for me. So I really prayed about it, and I prayed that God would show me, you know, is this the right person you have for me? And I just um, began to fall in love with Brian and began to fall in love with the things that he was showing me that he could be my husband. You don't go to a Christian rehabilitation center to meet your future wife. <laughs> um, so it was a God thing. And what's so cool about... Um, because we'll be married three years in October. And what's so cool about marriage is that you can have this friend to to be able to depend on for strength. I wasn't looking for Miriam. I was looking for God. I was looking to seek His will. And He, he surpassed um, my hopes, uh, my dreams. Without His help and without His guidance, um, this will not work because we definitely know how to do it the wrong way. And so it's yeah. an everyday process. You know, God can work it out and he can make it good, just like he does with everything else. You know, it's pretty easy to sit there and listen to those stories and say, my gosh, did they need a savior? Really? How broken can you be? And then you have to realize that we're just as broken. We're just as broken. We all need a savior. We all need a savior. And it just so happens there is one. Jesus. Jesus is the savior we all need. The only problem is so many of us just haven't made the decision to stop trying to fill our life with all the wrong stuff, to stop wasting our life doing the wrong work, to stop trying to do it on our own, to, to stop grumbling because God's not doing it our way, not making sense to us. We need to, like them, just come to the end and say, I need a Savior, and you're the Savior I need. So just before I wrap this talk up, I'm going to ask if you'd just bow with me in a word of prayer. In all the different environments experiencing this moment, maybe you're online, I just want to encourage you. Put your trust in Him. If you've never taken this step where you've decided that you're going to stop doing all this other stuff and put your faith in Him, why not make the decision now? As I pray, why not take the words of my prayer and, and make them the expressions of your heart to God? Just in your heart say, God, I've been trying to fill my life with all the wrong stuff. Trying to do all the work to make me right with you. But it doesn't work. I've been trying to do it myself. I've been grumbling that you're not working for me. I've sinned against you. I've put myself at the center. But today... I'm inviting you to be at the center. I'm putting my trust, Jesus, in your death on that cross for me. Forgive me. You rose again. Now fill me with new life. I believe. I trust. I need you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed with me in one of our live worship experiences, I just want to encourage you, let us know, would you? Let us know. We want to celebrate that God's doing a work in your life. We want to know how God uses a, a talk like this in your life. But uh, to tell us, we've made it easy. Uh, there's a connection card in the program that we handed to each of you. 
and you just fill it out. Check the circle at the bottom that says, today you prayed to receive Jesus. And then at every exit in our live services, there's a box that you can throw that into. And we're going to send you a letter about next steps that you can take in your journey with God. If you're watching online, just hit the what next button. We'll do the same thing for you. Here's how we have to end. Four stops, three starts. What are the starts? You can read the passages on your own in John 6. Once we stop doing that to other stuff, we need to start believing Jesus. If you're going to really experience his salvation in every part of your life, you need to just start believing him. When he says something that makes no sense, when he steps into your life, the synagogue of your life, and he goes, oh, by the way, you know, all that other stuff that you value and all that stuff, yeah, it's really nothing. I'm the bread of life. You need to just go, I believe. Because until you do, you're going to keep getting yourself in the same mess you've always been in. And then you need to start following Jesus. Because you see, Jesus only did those things which was God's will for him. We get in trouble because we do what we want to do. We pursue our will. We need to start following him. And finally, look at John chapter 6, verses 49 through 51. Jesus says in that synagogue of Capernaum, your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, but they died. He not only had temporary benefit, but here is the bread, speaking of himself, that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. You know what the problem is? When he stood there before those people, those people didn't really care about what he was saying because, as he said, they just wanted bread for the moment. The most important thing for them was bread for the moment, life for the moment, health for the moment, provision for the moment. That's all they cared about. You know why? Because the timeline they were living by was so short. He says, you're living just for temporary stuff. I can give you eternal stuff. They wanted little stuff because they were living for such small things, but he wanted to give them bigger stuff. If we're going to really experience him as Savior, we have to start believing Jesus, start following Jesus, and we need to start living by a longer timeline, not this life, but eternal life, and we need to start living for bigger stuff, not the stuff I need now, but the stuff God has provided forever, and when we do, the suffering of this present world will not be worthy to be compared to the glory that God will reveal in us through Christ Jesus. He is the bread of life. We all need that bread. The question is, Are we partaking of it? He said all of this in the synagogue of Capernaum so that we could have it today. Thanks for coming.